Hey, Alex Pearson on point. Big changes to serve, and it could leave millions high and dry. The political games being played by the liberals, and why all of a sudden they're crying, urgency, urgency. Well, they should have thought about that before they shut down the House. We'll talk to an expert about the Trudeau, uh, what he means when he says, you know, we can afford all these promises. Don't worry, the government's got you backed, and we'll take care of it because of all these low interest rates. Well, those rates go up. Does that make sense long term? Who's going to pay for it? Also, small businesses have a very long road to recovery. We'll talk about the data that the CFIB has dug up and what the new changes could mean as far as emergency aid. Let's get going. Quite frankly, the urgency of this cannot be understated. We we have been signaling all along the, the need to put this legislation forth and have uh, parties agree to the urgency and the need to continue to support uh, workers and families. Um, and vulnerable Canadians who will necessarily rely on these benefits for the months uh, and for the year to come. Well, Minister, if it's also urgent, why didn't you just put it in the throne speech? Or I know I've got a better idea. Why wasn't this emergency aid pushed through before your government shut down Parliament? Alex Pearson with you on this Thursday, September 24th. And this is a big one because it affects a whole lot of people. And I don't know if it's a game of politics. I don't know if it's incompetence. I don't know if it's because this government has been too distracted by scandal. But in a matter of days, the emergency aid now known as CERB, that runs out. And for months, 2 million people have been assured, don't worry, you'll be rolled into a new emergency benefit. Nothing to worry about, Trudeau tells us. Well, you may need to worry because in a surprise move this afternoon, the Liberals increased the amount from $400 a week to $500 to match the CERB payments. And this was a part of a negotiation done to win support from the NDP in the throne speech. But why did it have to be negotiated at all? Why wasn't it just included in the throne speech? Or better yet, why didn't the Trudeau government just get it done before needlessly shutting down Parliament? Well... Because they had scandals to bury, of course. And so here we are. A couple of million people could soon be in limbo because what this requires is a new piece of legislation. It has to be voted on, passed through the House. And because the Senate doesn't sit until after next week, it could mean millions are left high and dry for a period of time. Why? Well, because this government put politics before the needs of people. And now they're panicking. And they should, because this is yet another self-inflicted wound. But this is, you know, the collateral damage. This is what happens when you needlessly prorogue parliament. And a government plays politics during a time of need. That's what they've done. But, you know, there are lots of games being played these days. Games played Wednesday. And, you know, sometimes I just got to step away from the breaking news bubble. Sometimes I, after the show... I kind of sit back and I try to fully absorb, you know, what's the big picture? What's the conversation around me? And one of the games played last night is that, you know, we were told the prime minister, you know, he had an urgent message that he had to deliver to Canadians. It had to be done during our prime time. 
And as you heard, I mean, instead what we got was a big old nothing burger. They didn't even cook the burger. Nothing, nothing Trudeau said was new. Nothing was said that you did not already know. That has not been said for days by the health ex- you know, experts. We know numbers are going up. We know we've got to be careful. But in no way did what Trudeau say warrant networks, including ours, to break programming. And you got to understand, you know, for us to do that, the big bosses come into play. And they demanded and were assured by the prime minister's people that it would not be used for a political speech. The conditions were that it had to be because it was of urgent national importance for all Canadians. And what we got was Trudeau telling us, sorry, but there'll be no turkey. And, uh, oh, yeah, wash your hands. And then, of course, he went through bits and pieces of his throne speech that already got hours of time during the afternoon. So he lied. What he did was use us to put a stamp on his throne speech so that his scandal-plagued governor general wouldn't get any headlines. And frankly, that's not okay. To me, it's an abuse of our platform, and it abuses uh, a privilege reserved for actual crises. Crises like uh, what we saw with the FLQ crisis, or when our parliament was attacked when Stephen Harper was in power. I mean, those events warrant a national address. Last night did not. So shame on you, Mr. Trudeau, for playing partisan politics on our time and our dime. But putting that aside, what did catch my ear? Well, when Trudeau said this. Low interest rates mean we can afford it. And in fact, doing less would end up costing far more. Doing less would mean a slower recovery and bigger deficits in the long run. While we're dealing with this pandemic, I don't want you or your parent or your friend to take on debt that your government can better shoulder. Hmm. Okay. So does he actually think uh, that the budget balances itself? Because I'm actually worried he might. Who does he think pays for all this borrowing? I mean, sure, interest rates are low now. That doesn't mean it's going to last forever. It won't. In fact, there are plenty of warnings of that is uh, not going to be the case. And we can only borrow so much before the piper comes a calling. And it's certainly just a matter of time before interest and inflation starts to rise. And then what happens? Is Mr. Trudeau going to shoulder that for us? No, we will. So it's all cute in that, that he says, don't worry. But those who do are naive. And we don't even know what's being spent. We don't know what more money they want to spend. We know uh, right now we're at about $400 billion in deficit spending, but we have abs- we've had absolutely no accounting for almost a year. The parliamentary budget officer doesn't even know where spending is. But of course he warns we're at levels that can't be sustained without a plan to rein it in. The credit agencies have downgraded us because they don't like what they see. And when asked today, and as reported by David Aiken, you know, will we get a budget? Will we see numbers? And Finance Minister Freeland refused to say. But of course, did ask for a blank check on more spending to pay for all these big, you know, pie in the sky throne speech promises. Well, great. I mean, opening the vaults is the easy part. But Trudeau's either blindly naive or lying, you know, when he says, you know, the government will burden the bill. No, Mr. Prime Minister. The taxpayers will burden that bill. 
But then this kind of stuck out for me. Trudeau declared, we aren't just starting a second wave. It's here, you know, that there'll be no turkey gathering. But maybe we can salvage Christmas. And I thought, is that even true? Like, are we in an actual second wave? Is that declared? Or did he just did he just throw that out there to justify getting network time in prime time? Because on Tuesday, Canada's top doctors, Dr. Tam and all the colleagues, they, they took us through modeling federally and warned that, yes, we're at a crossroads, that a couple of regions, places like Ottawa, Quebec, they are in second wave. But they made it very clear, very clear. They don't yet have enough data for them to declare Canada's in a second wave. Take a listen. It's up to the various provinces and the chief medical officers looking at the situation in their territories to declare a second wave. And if that is the case, then we can declare a second wave. All right. So they can't declare the second wave. So did, uh, did Trudeau freewheel this? I mean, is this fake news? Isn't that what Trump does? Does he know something that his top doctors don't? And if so, who, who do you believe? Because I listened to Tuesday's hour-long modeling press conference this morning twice. Yes, twice. And it was painful both times. But I wanted to check on whether Dr. Tam or her colleagues actually said a second wave. And, and they made it very clear that cases are going up. But it's what happens in the next two weeks in each province that actually decides if we're in a second wave. And that can't be determined until all of the provincial chiefs of health actually report the data. So where did Trudeau get this? It's a pretty big declaration to make. And we know what happened to the boy who cried wolf. I mean, after a while, nobody believed him. And we've already seen how many non-believers are out there when it comes to COVID. So Trudeau can try to convince us he had an urgent message to deliver, but what he did was play politics at our expense and further, I think, muddy the muddied COVID waters. So, hey, we may miss Thanksgiving dinner, but we sure got the turkey, and his name is Justin Trudeau. And that's just my opinion. Well, uh, I wish I could say two million people could, you know, breathe a sigh of relief, but there's a lot to this next one uh, because the prime minister could have just announced yesterday in the throne speech or maybe even done this before proroguing the House. But instead, we see kind of this game of politics. But earlier today, in a surprise move, they kicked off the new parliamentary session by boosting a new aid program called the Canada Recovery Benefit so that it matches, you know, what people would be getting on the CERB. And on CERB, people were getting 500 bucks weekly, but this new benefit, which is for those who don't qualify for EI, would get $400. But of course, this new piece of legislation and the changes to it have to be voted on. And the Senate's not sitting for at least another week, which means we could see some very big delays. Samara Baliski is an employment lawyer and associate at Simfiro Tumarkin. Great to have you, Samara. This is um, kind of changing on the fly, but we have millions who could be losing CERB in a matter of days. And for what I don't know why they didn't do this before shutting down Parliament, and I do not know why it wouldn't have been talked about in the throne speech at the very least, but uh, they've made changes to this. And we've got people who are literally days away from losing this, this benefit. Hi, Alex. Yes, that's absolutely right. So in terms of the, the current CERB that's in place, it's in place until uh, next week, essentially. And if 
if the new legislation is not passed by that time, then many, many Canadians are going to end up seeing a gap between what they're receiving on CERB and until they're able to transition onto the new EI benefit or any other of the recovery benefits that are part of this new plan. Okay. So what do you tell those people? Because it's already stressful enough. For some, it's not. We know that some people don't really need it, but there are an awful lot of people who actually do. Um, what, what would you tell those people? So I think for a vast majority of those people, they would actually qualify for regular EI benefits. So what I would recommend to people who haven't been on EI, who are only out of work right now because of COVID-19, which, like I said, is a vast majority of of people out there, um, their employer may need to update their record of employment uh, in order for them to transfer over to the regular EI system rather than it being part of this new plan. Uh, Because it's important to keep in mind that regardless of this new plan that the government is now introducing, regular EI benefits um, you know, still exists. The system is still in place. And so if somebody were to, let's say, lose their job uh, after the CERB uh, is out of play, they would apply for EI. And so that's something that you know, some people can do in the meantime. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for other people who, you know, would need to qualify for one of these recovery benefits, the, the bad news for those people is that they're going to have to wait until this new legislation is enacted and they can then get on to these new benefits. Okay. And so is this something um, that can be extended by the government? I mean, can they not retroactively just say, okay, we'll hold you over until we get this sorted? So that's something that they certainly can do. And I would not be surprised if that's what they're looking into, knowing full well that there is quite a high possibility that there's going to be a gap here in coverage between the two different plans or the two different benefits, I should say, Um, just like they did extend, uh, you know, the the application period uh, to 28 weeks with the CERB, they may be able to extend it. Um, However, in general, there would be a legislative approval that would be required for that to extend it past the October deadline. And so I'm sure that's something the government's looking into. And, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm sure they're doing what they can so that people aren't without these benefits. But at the end of the day, uh, they've waited until now to do it. And the reality of the situation is that there may be, uh, you know, a situation where people are without benefits for maybe a week or two um, while this gets transitioned. Yeah, and that's there and let you know. This is the government telling us we've got your back. You know, we will take care of this. You know, they could have gotten this done before shutting down the house. I mean, that's five weeks right there. They could have gotten it done by then. I don't know why they waited to the very last minute because waiting to the last minute uh, puts an awful lot of people in jeopardy, and it just seems a bit reckless that they would have, um, you know, just pushed it to the limit. Sure. And, and, you know, I'm sure, like yourself, a lot of people are asking that question of why did the government wait this long? They knew this was coming. They knew there had to be a transition. This should have been addressed earlier. Uh, All I can say is yes to all of those things. It it should have been dealt with earlier. Uh, But unfortunately, we are in the situation now where, you know, the, you know, the liberal government needs to do what they can to push this through. And the hope is that the you know, opposition governments will work together with the Liberals so that this can be put through as quickly as possible because, you know, regardless of politics, whichever party, you know, you are, people from all different political parties right now are going to suffer if this doesn't get through fast enough.
Yeah, and it's not even the opposition, but the Senate doesn't sit until after next week. They're not even back yet. And so there's that hurdle. So the opposition can pass it through, but then it has to go through through the Senate. Um, and, and so there's a lot of levels uh, here. Is there a way, uh, Samara, though, that these people can, um, I mean, was the initial package pushed through? Is it just a change to the extra $100? I mean, is the initial package done? So in terms of the actual transition plan, we would have to look at what the what the bill specifies that they that they tabled today, uh, because the details are are ever changing. And so, uh, in terms of whether the four hundred dollars will be available versus the five hundred dollars, that's something where we need to actually look at the bill and the details to see. Uh, in terms of uh, the transition to the EI. Um, it's, it's not the amount that's going to be the issue here. It's a matter of having it passed by the Senate. Right. And then, of course, uh, it's going to it's going to it's going to make a lot of people awfully jittery. Um, and of course, you're hearing from them. Are you just hearing horror stories? People really worried? Oh, we've been hearing horror stories for months, Alex. Unfortunately, I mean, it was, you know, this is one issue few months ago, we were hearing from people uh, who weren't able to take their, you know, who were going on maternity leave or, or parental leave, who weren't getting their, their regular EI benefits because there were issues in the system. So this is something that many Canadians have been stressed by uh, for many, many months for different reasons. And so with this new announcement and the timeline, the very tight timeline that we're dealing with now, yes, we're hearing from lots of people who are very concerned, and rightfully so. And, and the hope is that they get this passed quickly so that if there are people who are without benefits, it will be for a very, very brief amount of time. And then when the government does transition to this new plan, assuming it happens, um, they will provide retroactive payments. So while sure. there will be people who you know, might be without benefits for a week or so, as soon as this gets passed, they'll be provided with the retroactive benefits and that will hopefully, uh, you know, prevent any actual financial problems for those people. Nonetheless, folks, if ever there were a time to call your MP, now would be the time. Uh, We'll see where this takes us, Samara, but I appreciate your uh, insight into this. Thanks, Alex. That is uh, Samara Malitsky. These guys are busy over at uh, Semfiro Tamarkin, but there you go. So we'll keep an eye on this for you because it's a big change and it is a big screw up. You know, if you're a small business, the waiting game also continues. And a lot of them are, as we know, hanging by a thread. And you wonder, you know, did they hear anything in the throne speech that gives them hope for survival? And then the next question is like, can they even wait longer? Because keep in mind, the throne speech, you know, still has to be voted on to bring these promises. And uh, if the NDB negotiate their demands to prop up this government, it will add to delays. And I think for a lot of businesses, and, you know, you see it every day in your community, walk around, you know, the extended help or even more help is, uh, is just too late. So you see a lot of stores closing. But if you have managed to hold on, uh, what will that recovery look like? And the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, who really... They really have become the champions and uh, the support that businesses need. They dug into this and they now predict on average that a recovery for small business will take at least one and a half years. But if you're in the hospitality sector, we're talking eight years to get back to where you were before this thing hit. And that, of course, assumes that we're not getting any more uh, shutdowns. Laura Jones is executive vice president over at CFIB. She joins us now. Good to have you, Laura. Thanks for having CFIB on the show. 
Well, I mean, I just can't uh, say it enough that we really, really, really have to uh, support small businesses because it's not bricks and mortar. These are businesses owned by people in our very communities and they're our neighbors, they're our friends, and they are absolutely struggling. And so you looked into sales recovery between June when uh, businesses started to reopen. And at that point, you know, 17% reported normal sales, but by September, 30% of businesses had returned to normal sales. I mean, that, that is scary. It is scary, and it is a lot slower than what we were hoping uh, for. So I think by this time, you know, nobody really um, can predict the future. But um, when we were back in June, I think we were hoping certainly that by September, we'd have more than 30% of businesses back to normal sales. And so one of the things we did is we said, okay, well, if this continues, if this pace continues, um, what will that look like before we get um, businesses on average back to normal sales? And then we looked at the sector-specific breakdown. And so, yeah, on average, it would be a year and five months if this pace continues. And that's the big if. That's the assumption that, that we're making here that we're actually hoping to change because we're hoping to shorten that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then for some sectors, of course, it's been particularly challenging and hospitality would be included in that um, sector where the current pace, it would take them eight years to get back to normal sales. Yeah. I mean, you must hear just absolute heartbreaking stories every day. We do hear heartbreaking stories. I mean, business owners are a really tough, resilient lot, but I this has tested, um, you know, even the most resilient of us. I think um, most people have struggled in one way or another with the, with the pandemic. Uh, but when your livelihood depends on it, it's it's really tough. It's been financially um, very um, challenging and, of course, emotionally uh, very challenging. And some business owners have told us it's kind of like watching your life's work circle the drain. Others have had to make really tough uh, choices with long-term employees. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, there's it is a very challenging time, uh, you know, but business owners are resilient and there's that too. So it's not all... It's not, um, you know, it's not all bad news. It's just that it's a very, very challenging time. And I I would say one of the bright spots for business owners has been their relationship with customers. Mm -hmm. We know Mm -hmm. how important that is to them, both emotionally and, of course, financially. So we're encouraging consumers to do everything they can right now to get out and support your local businesses today so they'll be there tomorrow. And we've got a great uh, smallbusinesseveryday.ca website where you can go and find out about great things happening to support uh, small business. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, no disrespect to the Costco's and the and the you know the big big box office stores. I mean, they, they'll survive. They've done just fine, but it really is just the the market on the corner, or you know, the boutique shop or the small retail. I mean, they they are the ones who actually need um, you know our loyalty and uh, to spend uh, you know even a few dollars uh, of support. But you know, the um, throne speech was yesterday, and and the government pledged to extend things like the Canada Emergency Waves wage subsidy to next summer, also expanding the Canada Emergency Business Account, which um, will help businesses with things like rent or fixed costs, as well as improve the business credit available uh, programs. Is this the right move? I mean, they've gotten a lot of them wrong. They've gotten some of them right. But is did you hear in the throne speech what you needed to hear? I think the wage subsidy piece of it is certainly good news. There were a lot of businesses that were starting to get nervous that that may be coming to an end, that some of the supports may be coming to an end um, too early, and and certainly particularly for businesses in those hardest hit 
sectors, uh, this is important. And, and there was some indication in the throne speech as well, there may be some extra help for those businesses. And also that if there is um, some additional shutdowns related to the second wave, that the federal government may be coming in and, and helping with some of the um, expenses related to uh, those shutdowns for businesses. So that was all good news. And expanding the um, Canada Emergency Business Account, um, again, that's something we've been calling for. We think that that makes a lot of sense. But the, the, the challenge is that often these these announcements are made sort of at a very, very high level. Yeah. And then business owners are, are left saying, okay, well, what exactly does that mean for me? And those details aren't available yet. You know, we don't know what the amount of the wage subsidy will be. We had a pile of questions today. We do weekly webinars with our business owners, and um, we had a pile of questions on today's webinar. Well, do we have any idea of how much that will be? Um, You know, and the answer, of course, right now is um, no, not yet. Um, So the sooner the government can clarify some of this, obviously, the better, because uncertainty is really challenging for business owners, and they're just facing, you know, an enormous amount of that. Um, that's out of their control right now. And so when governments can can come in and fill in those details sooner rather than later, that's very helpful. Well, and that's the big problem. They got the serve out the door, no problem. But the businesses have really been um, facing just an up, uh, uphill battle trying to get into these programs, qualifying for these programs. A lot of the programs did not work, uh, like the rent relief. Um, and, and for whatever reason, and I don't know, well, other than bureaucracy and government, you know, moves, uh, you know, at this at the pace of a snail, why they haven't moved faster to, to, you know, keep these programs simple, keep them, you know, easy, close the loopholes and get them going. I mean, because frankly, at this point, Laura, I have to think, you know, aid is just too late for a lot of these businesses. Yeah, and we know that, you know, we did a a study a few weeks back um, showing that about one in seven is at risk of permanent closure. And we were talking earlier about how we've all seen walking around our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, those businesses that are already closed, and that one in seven is on top of what you're what you've already seen. And you know, there's no question that the support programs are important, and getting them right is important. I mean, you, t- you mentioned rent relief. We're a week out now. Next yeah. Thursday is another first of the month. Yeah. And businesses have no idea what's happening. You know, we know that we know the existing program, Secra, which has been which was you know had all kinds of problems with it has come to an end, but will there be something going forward to replace it? Will those business owners that were shut out of participating in SECRA because their landlords didn't apply, will will there be anything for them? These are still open questions, and the sooner we can answer those questions, the better. Yeah, the collateral damage of things like shutting down Parliament and all the scandals, there is a price to pay, and sadly it's the uh, main streets. Laura, we'll uh, continue to talk about this, and I thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Laura Jones, Executive Vice President over at CFIB. And, and there's no group, I don't, they're one of the busiest groups. I mean, they support small business, but I mean, if they, if the businesses didn't have them fighting for them, I don't think we'd have any of these programs, frankly. So um, they've been very, very helpful. Hey, so good news, folks. You know, all those hundreds of billions in pandemic spending and more money coming, uh, the Prime Minister is going to shoulder it for us. So you need not stress about your job loss or your failing business because the government's going to borrow and borrow and borrow and pay for it, right? Oh, boy. So while addressing the country Wednesday, the prime minister stated that we don't have to stress because his government says it will spend as much as they have to to help those hurt by the pandemic. And he justifies this, stating, quote, low interest rates mean we can afford it and doing less would end up costing far more. Doing less would mean a slower recovery and bigger deficits in the long run. So not only does 
the prime minister not seem to understand that we, the taxpayers, do actually foot these costs, but that interest rates don't stay low forever. So that's my takeaway. Ian Lee with Carlton Sprott School of Business might have a better or more informed take. How do you react to that, Ian? Um, it, it makes me extremely nervous that Mr. Trudeau apparently, I say apparently, is utterly oblivious to the debate that's going on in monetary circles and amongst economists, uh, led by uh, Professor Charles Goodhart at the London School of Economics, um, who before going there was, I think, 30 years at the Bank of England uh, mm -hmm. at the very most senior levels, and he's one of the leading monetary policy experts in the world has published books. He argues very convincingly and eloquently that the last 20 or so years of world historically unprecedentedly low interest rates was a complete anomaly. An anomaly meaning not repeatable and is not going to last. And it happened because we had an enormous number of boomers around the world, not just Canada, all over Europe, U.S., and they were in their peak earning years. And when you're in your peak earning years, that's when you do your saving. Savings went through the roof, and savings is what is used to finance government debt, corporate debt, personal debt, mortgage debt. Classic intro to economic equation everybody knows. And so his point is that that period, extraordinary, anomalous, unbelievably unusual period is coming to an end because the boomers are moving into their retirement years. Their incomes are going down and they're getting older and they're going to start, it's an ugly word, dis-savings. That's a fancy economic term for saying that they're going to start spending their savings. Nursing homes, elder care, mm -hmm. extended care, assisted living is brutally expensive. Yeah. And so he argues that the very, just about the same time, almost at the same time, that all these boomers around the world are going to start running down their savings. Governments everywhere are driving up their demand for debt through the roof. And so the savings surplus that occurred for the last 20 years that drove down interest rates, more, more savings than there was demand for the savings, is going to flip and reverse and the demand for money for debt is going to go through the roof, while the supply of savings is going to go down, down, down. And so, therefore, he concludes interest rates are inevitably going to be going up. And for the, for the foreseeable future, for the duration of the boomers as a dominant uh, segment in the various populations. So when Mr. Trudeau says, oh, no, interest rates are absolutely not going up, he is blowing smoke out his ears and has not been briefed, or if he has, he didn't understand the briefing, or I don't know. But it is simply inaccurate for him to deny the possibility of interest rates going up when there are some very serious people saying it's going to be happening, not in the next six months, not in the next 18 months while we're in COVID. I'm talking beyond that period. Interest rates are a long-term phenomenon. So is borrowing money for 20, 30, 40 years, a long-term phenomenon. Mm -hmm. He's talking about right now, interest rates are not going up. And he, I know he knows that a lot of people understand they're not going up for the next 18 months. And so he's extrapolating from there. He's assuming that that's going to go on and on and on and on. And it's not.
Right. And so it's disingenuous. And I get it. You don't want to scare people in one of these situations. But it was the throne speech yesterday. It was a chance for him to, you know, set the tone of what's going forward. But we heard nothing about recovery other than this promise of a million jobs, nothing to rein in any kind of, uh, you know, deficits or or a plan of how we're going to deal with all of this. It was just, you know, we're going to solve it. We're going to get through this together. And a whole lot of promises, frankly, are are (laughs) not cheap. Exactly. I'll come to the expenses in a moment. Let me just go back for a moment to what I just said about interest rates. Some listeners could say, oh, that's just the opinion of Professor Goodhart. Yes, he's very prominent, extremely prominent, but it's just an opinion. Okay. Okay, I get that. Our own Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve of the United States of the largest economy in the world are actively, openly announcing that they're going to increase inflation. And it has been demonstrated over and over for, throughout human history, that inflation is correlated to interest rates. When inflation goes up, interest rates go up. I lived through the 1970s. Yeah. Interest, inflation went to 8, then the central bank increased the rate, then it went up again. Interest rates, inflation peaked at 14 or 15% in the 70s when I bought my first house, and they drove the interest rate up to 20% when I was the mortgage manager of the fourth largest branch of the Bank of Montreal. So when people say interest rates can't go up, they're wrong. They have gone up in the past. And inflation, the governments are doing what Milton Friedman predicted 30, 40 years ago. He said when governments get deep, deep, deep into trouble, into debt, he says they inflate the, the, the inf- they drive up the inflation so they can pay back the, the debt with cheaper money, inflated right. dollars. And we're about to see that. I mean, they're telegraphing at the Bank of Canada and the Federal Reserve, and that is going to ensure interest rates go up, even if you don't accept the argument about boomers uh, running down their savings. Right. In other words, screw the uh, the next couple of generations. But, you know, interestingly, uh, Finance Minister uh, Freeland today, you know, she was asked, you know, are you when are you going to table this budget? Like, when are we going to see some numbers? Because we haven't seen actual numbers or analysis in almost a year. And, you know, instead, what we got is, is that she wants to table legislation asking for, you know, this continued blank check. Uh, for COVID spending. So they aren't committing to showing us any kind of budget or putting any price tag beside anything. They just want to continue spending. But there's a reason for it, Alex. I, I really do believe there's a reason. And now to come back to the throne speech and your point a moment ago, I went through, I sat through and watched the throne speech on TV and I read, I had actually had a copy and I read it after. And a line for line, word for word, 17 pages. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh my God. Like, there's got to be in here. And I didn't price it because they didn't put any price tags on any of the things. I was just sort of ballparking at my head mentally, you know, like back of an envelope. I ka-ching, know ka-ching, 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 yeah. PBO's priced uh, Pharmacare at 25 to $40 billion, all by itself, one little program. And I thought to myself, you know, there's got to be at least $100 billion of net new spending. Well, David Rosenberg, an extraordinarily dis- distinguished economist in Toronto, wrote a column today in the Financial Post. He came up with an astonishingly similar number. He said there's probably around $100 billion of spending in there. The reason they're not coming up with the budget is because they know how gigantic these numbers are. And yeah. they know if they put those out there, the latest public opinion polls show that 75% of Canadians 
are concerned. Only 23% say, I don't care less at all. There's your hardcore progressive left. 75% are concerned. And they know if they put out the actual truth of the cost of the numbers, it's going to scare the living hell out of large numbers of Canadians. That's why they're not putting the budget out there, because they want to get reelected. And so they're going to spin and, and prevaricate and so forth, because... If, as I said, if they put a budget out and then they have to put numbers to the budget, that's what a budget is. It's filled in with numbers. And the finance people will prepare it. And, of course, the prime minister and the finance minister have to sign off. But they, will, they can't lie about it. And when they put that budget out, it's going to show, I think, I think, Alex, we're looking at a structural, built-in, structural means permanent, built-in deficit of somewhere north of 400 billion dollars or almost a half a trillion and our country is only two trillion dollars that's the size of our country so that's 25 percent of the totality of our economy and that is going to freak out the markets investors currency and so forth and we could actually see a fiscal crisis we could see a run on the dollar this does happen in other countries where the markets lose confidence in the government to control and keep uh, spending in check we could see a run on the dollar meaning driving it down and people say it can't happen it happens in countries regularly argentina regularly goes through horrible peso crises where the currency goes down 50 percent and of course we import a lot of food every country does argentina does and there's people that literally can't afford their groceries because the cost of the food goes to the roof because the, the currency has collapsed that is paying you know when you have to convert the currency to buy the foreign food so my point being i i really you know kevin page said it's unsustainable uh david dodge said it's unsustainable john manley two days ago the former liberal finance minister said it's unsustainable janice mckinnon the former ndp finance minister saskatchewan said it's unsustainable when all these people and they're not conservatives these are liberals and ndp types you know when they're saying that the pbo said it was unsustainable I don't think we're that far away if, if, my caveat is, if they insist on rolling all those promises in the throne speech out, we are not that far away from a fiscal crisis. And I don't well, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, up against, I'm up against the clock, but certainly the credit rating uh, agencies will certainly uh, give oh, us an absolutely. earful on it. They already yeah. are. Ian, yeah. I got to drop it there, but I thank you very much, and we will continue watching. Thank you. Ian Lee joining us. There's, there you go. Hard truth. Always watch the dollar. Follow the dollar. See where it takes us. That is your podcast today. You can hear On Point, of course, live Monday through Friday, 6.30 to 10. I'm Alex Pearson.